Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we connect trending, evidence-based pharmacotherapy to your pharmacy and medicine practice. Let's listen in as pharmacist Jeff Wall talks through new obesity guidelines from the AGA. This week, we're going to talk about the brand spanking new, and by brand spanking new, I mean just published this week, American Gastroenterological Association Guidelines on Medications for Obesity, and and this is a huge topic that is rapidly changing, as we all know, and so I I think uh, this was a very timely uh, drop by the AGA on on these guidelines, because I think a lot of uh, physicians are struggling uh, to to, to, uh, determine who's going to be on these medications, will the insurance pay for it, uh, you know, stuff like that and and given the problems with obesity in the United States, um, you know I think the bottom line is that a lot more patients should probably be on these medications than are currently, and so having a nice review of this I think is, is really important. Um, again, uh, again just published uh, and the the uh, paper uh, link is in our show notes, and that is it's a free pay it's a free paper. If you go to their website, you can actually get the whole guideline for free, which is kind of nice. The AGA and the in the guideline note that man, this is hardly news. It's in the in the water is wet sort of thing that the prevalence of obesity in the United States has uh, increased dramatically in the past few decades. We're now uh, at, at about 45% of American adults have obesity. And, and again, remember, obes- obesity is defined as a BMI of greater than 30. And so basically, one in two people you're going to run into are obese. Yeah, I know when you add on just overweight, which is patients with a BMI of 27 to 30, uh, that number, uh, I think, passes 50%. So again, uh, you know, this is a very, very common problem. Um, and and the other problem, of course, is that we've seen an unbelievable rise in obesity in young adults. Uh, they note that in 1976, 6.2% of patients, uh, young adults, and this is usually patients under age 30, were uh, known, known to be obesity. And now it is 33%. So just a gigantic increase in uh, young adult and childhood obesity as well. Um, and of course, this has led us to see uh, things like you know type two diabetes and hypertension in people in their twenties and thirties, which we just never saw before. You know before before the the nineteen nineties, uh, you really just didn't see a whole bunch of young people with with the complications associated with obesity, and now it's not uncommon at all. You know, and you know it's probably easier to talk about the the uh, complications uh, that aren't caused by obesity that than those that are, because it's just a long and painful list, including cardiovascular disease, of course, diabetes, dyslipidemia. Uh, now non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is what the leading and fastest cause of cirrhosis in the United States. It's, it, they say that it'll soon overtake alcohol uh, in the next few years, which is just unbelievable to me. Um, osteoarthritis, obstructive sleep apnea, um, it, you know, it, it goes on and on and on. And even certain types of cancer, like colorectal cancer, has been shown to be linked to, to obesity. So obviously, this is a big issue. And, and you could do probably five game changers about some of the reasons for that. Uh, you know, we talked last week about, you know, food uh, 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 deserts and food insecurity, and it's a lot easier to, to eat uh, cheap food, which is high in caloric intake and kind of not doesn't have a lot of nutrients in it. Uh, that tends to be cheaper food. Uh, the, the role of high co- uh, fructose corn syrup, I mean, it goes on and on and on, and we won't belabor that in, in, in this uh, show. But the bottom line is, is that it's really common. And the bottom line is, is that lifestyle modifications, such as uh, improving diet, and they usually say, uh, try to shoot for a, a dietary intake of less than 500 kilocalories a day and exercise and things like that is the foundation and and should always be the foundation for obesity. But as study after study has shown, and my guess is many of you in the audience have found, it has limited effectiveness and durability. I mean, you might be able to get some stuff 
but it's it's hard to keep it up, especially over over the years. So, you know, we, the bottom line is that pharmacologic therapies and surgical therapies have both been developed and, and are approved for long-term treatment of, uh, of obesity. Um, we won't be talking about some of the surgical uh, um, uh, interventions here, uh, just because we're going to focus on the pharmacotherapy piece of it. They, they note, though, that when it comes to medications for um, uh, obesity, that uh, only a tiny fraction of patients who are eligible actually receive them. And this is probably due to two big uh, issues. The first is clinician unfamiliarity. Um, I think uh, that a lot of physicians are just not aware of all the relatively new interventions out there. I think there's also a, an element of fear among, among older clinicians. Um, if you're old like me, you remember the big fen-fen boom of the mid-90s. I was act I had actually just came out of pharmacy school uh, in 92. And you know, in the mid-90s, the fen-fen the boom really hit. And I remember working uh, part-time in, in a community pharmacy there, and you just couldn't keep it on the shelves. It was flying off the shelves. It was the, one of the biggest movers in every community pharmacy in the United States. Somewhat less than, than uh, scrupulous physicians at the time were starting weight loss clinics, where basically uh, you showed up, you got weighed, you hand over your check, and you got a, a prescription for Fen-Fen. And then, of course, it, that all fell apart when flenfluramine and dexfenfluramine were found to cause you know, pulmonary hypertension and, and valvular disorders, and that got the drug pulled. And I think there are a lot of a lot of more veteran clinicians just remember that or heard about it and they and they get a little nervous about using these medications so i think all that plus the fact that there's uh, of course way limited access uh, for insurance coverage you know I, i've always i've always noted about some of the short-sighted uh, thinking of insurance companies that you know they'll gladly pay for some of the complications associated with with, with obesity but won't pay to treat for the obesity itself um, i think kind of predicated on the fact that that'll happen years down the line and they you may not be on their insurance anymore so it's going to be somebody else's problem but for all those reasons, only a tiny percent of patients who are eligible actually get put on, on medications for obesity. So that's kind of the point of this guideline. Uh, like most AGA guidelines, they do two things. They, it, it's a PICO formatted guideline. So they want to ask specific questions that, that they want to take a look at. And then uh, the guidelines are developed using the grade framework, which I think almost every major organization now uses as far as their best practices and guideline development. But what I really like about the AGA guidelines that I don't think a lot of other uh, uh, professional guidelines do is they run their own meta-analysis. So they do their own systematic review and meta-analysis of all the PICO questions and the interventions for them. And they can give you, I think, a really nice you know, overview of, of the efficacy and safety of these based on accumulated data. And, and again, some other organizations do that, but, but really AGA is, I think has is, is really done a good job of, of, of doing this sort of, of background and investigative work to make sure that their recommendations are based on the latest uh, evidence-based medicine. So when they do these uh, meta-analyses, of course, they use the Cochrane risk bias tool, which is pretty standard. Um, and then uh, they have a certainty of evidence using the great approach where they go high evidence, moderate evidence, low evidence, or very low evidence. And then they, you know, basically recommend basically, uh, you know, yes, we recommend this. Yes, we suggest it. Recommend basically means that most patients should, should consider this and, and suggest means specific patients in specific situations can, can do that. So uh, that's kind of the background of this. And again, they asked nine questions in these, in the, in the PICO format in, in these guidelines. Um, we're going to only attack, attack the, the first eight because uh, one of the interventions they met is not routinely available in the United States. So I thought probably best we tried to focus on, on the eight that are available in the U.S. So the first recommendation, which is probably not any um, um, big surprises based on these guidelines, is that they note that in patients with obesity, again, patients with a BMI of over 30, and overweight patients with weight-related complications who have an inadequate response to lifestyle modifications, the guidelines do recommend adding pharmacologic agents up 
two lifestyle modifications to over continuing lifestyle modifications low, which they note as a strong recommendation and, and moderate certainty evidence. And one of the things they do spend a little bit of time in the guidelines talk about is, well, you know, what can you expect or what is kind of the minimally clinically relevant difference with these medications? And that was kind of one of the breakpoints they used to determine their recommendations or not. And so what they basically said in, in their guidelines when they took a look at the evidence is that uh, the minimum uh, uh, efficacy of these drugs would be a 3% total body weight loss uh, between the adjunctive pharmacotherapy and lifestyle modifications alone, or an absolute 5% uh, body weight loss over a baseline alone. So, I mean, really, I think in English, what that means is that, you know, it, they considered the minimally effective difference for medications to be at least a 3% drop in someone's total body weight uh, over just lifestyle or just basically, an, you know, a 5% uh, uh, drop in body weight. And I think many clinicians have used this breakpoint, you know, as far as efficacy and non-efficacy for a long, long time, but it's nice that the, that's been kind of summarized in the guidelines. So then we move on to uh, some of the medications that they're using and, and, and they start off talking with the, the GLP-1 agonists, as you might imagine. And so for recommendation two, they, they recommend, of course, uh, 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 semaglutide 2.4 milligrams with lifestyle modifications. With It's a conditional recommendation, but with moderate certainty evidence. Um, so again, they suggest using it. So I, I think if, if, if I, I personally think the, the level of uh, benefit is, is pretty good and the level of studies is pretty good, um, but, but they, uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not exactly sure and they don't really discuss in the test why they just suggested versus recommending but again it, it kind of leads the list in the recommendation and it's interesting because in the in the uh, guideline itself it says that given the magnitude of net, net benefit that semaglutide should be actually prioritized over other medications for obesity so again in the text they note that 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 the semaglutide probably has the greatest net benefit yet uh, i think they felt that the evidence was just moderate certainty so that gave you the conditional re recommend recommendation certainly we know that uh, that semaglutide is probably the best GLP-1 agonist uh, to, to lose weight. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I think there's other studies that definitely, definitely uh, talk about that. Um, they note that GLP-1 agonists kind of across the board have been associated with, with, you know, a benefit in losing weight uh, kind of across the board, but this is the one that probably has the greatest weight loss associated with it. They note some of the side effects. And of course, as everyone knows, probably the biggest side effect with these drugs is initial nausea and vomiting, which is why you need gradual dose titration. They also note that it's been associated with the increased risk of pancreatitis and gallbladder disease, though I've often wondered, is the gallbladder disease just because you're losing weight fast? Because we know that's one of the risk factors for developing gallstones is, is rapid weight loss. So in their meta-analysis, they looked at eight randomized control trials with about 2,700 patients in them and basically found that, that the mean total body waste loss was 10.76%. Now remember, the minimum they considered beneficial was three, and this blew the doors off that. So again, the, the median total body waste loss was almost 11% in favor of the treatment group, and they note that in the studies they, that, that overall weight was anywhere from about 10 to 17 kilograms in the semaglutide group versus about 1.5 to 6. So, you know, I, I don't think it's any big, you know, news flash to people that, that semaglutide seems to be extremely effective at, at losing weight. And at least for the studies that we have, which uh, uh, go out to about two years, suggest that it, yeah, as long as you take it, you, you, you maintain the weight loss. In animals, uh, all the GLP-1 agonists were associated with uh, an increased risk of uh, medullary or thyroid cancer so if, or certain types of, of endocrine neoplasias. So if you have either of those or, uh, or family history of either of those, these drugs 
drugs are contraindicated in them. So they, you know, again, a, a very, even though the, the level of recommendation is kind of, you know, middling, uh, reading the, the literature and looking at their own results of their meta-analysis, you know, uh, semaglutide is, is certainly probably the leader of the list here. But again, as many clinicians know, uh, semaglutide is extremely hard uh, uh, to get covered by insurance and it's very expensive. And as the pharmacists who are listening to me, especially those in the community know, you can't get it even if you get it covered, um, that there's there's huge uh, uh, shortages of semaglutide, I think for a variety of reasons. I think the the uh, the benefit, the, the, the demand, I think far uh, exceeded what the company thought it was going to. And then um, I think uh, um, there, there are pockets of the country where a lot of people are on them. For example, I read something in I think it was CNN, where um, like in, in California, a lot of people are using, especially in, in the in entertainment industry, uh, where of course, you know, weight is a big deal, um, you know, and how you look is, is, is really important, that they're just paying cash for it so that they can, they can keep the weight off. So I mean, it, for a variety of reasons, uh, it's just, you know, Joe regular person, I think is going to have a difficult time, A, getting this paid for. And even if you do that at this, at this point, as, as of this recording, having a hard time getting those drugs, basically. They note that um, in addition to semaglutide, the other a GLP-1 agonist that's approved for weight loss is lorigotide. They uh, say basically all the same things with, with this compared to, to semaglutide, uh, but they also note that the, the weight loss in their meta-analysis was significantly lower. Remember, it's about 11% total body weight loss with the semaglutide. It was only about 5% total body weight loss uh, with the uh, lorigotide. So that's something to kind of keep in mind. Again, they, as far as mean kilograms, it was about negative 5.3 kilograms in, in this drug compared to semaglutide. So, you know, and, and there was a head-to-head study actually of semaglutide versus lorigotide and found that it was definitely better. So while it's probably not as effective as uh, semaglutide, I think it's something that can absolutely be considered. And it, interestingly, from what I've heard from some of my friends who work in community pharmacy, uh, this is actually an easier drug to get approved than semaglutide is and that, that uh, insurance companies are more likely to approve it. So again, if a patient can't afford semaglutide or can't get access to it, this may be a, a reasonable um, uh, other choice. We probably should take a, a second to note also that, and again, I know my colleagues in community pharmacy are dealing with this, uh, uh, terzepatide is a dual GLP and G, uh, one and GIP receptor coagonist that is FDA approved for type two diabetes. Um, they found in the type two diabetes um, um, study that it also caused significant weight loss. And in fact, the terzepatide uh, uh, studies have basically found uh, it blows even semaglutide out of the water with up to twenty five percent total body weight loss. And so, with that kind of weight loss, as you might imagine, the demand for for uh, terzepatide has been has been very fierce and it's extremely hard to get but um, it is at this point only FDA approved for as of this as of this recording only FDA approved for diabetes and not for weight loss I know the company is working on trying to get that FDA approval but uh, insurance companies are really kind of using that as as the you know sorry you know you don't have type 2 diabetes we're not we're not going to approve this medication um, and I've even heard where some compounding pharmacies are trying to get their hand on uh, hands on the uh, actual you know bulk product to kind of design their own uh, subcutaneous uh, injections of this, that's uh, probably pretty legally dubious, and I certainly wouldn't wouldn't recommend anyone try to go that route. Um, I think that we're just going to have to be patient that eventually this, these drugs uh, all will become uh, FDA approved for for. Um, uh, um, uh, obesity. Um, and eventually, you know, it may take a long, long time, but eventually these drugs will go generic. Um, I think that the price will come down. 
they'll like all subcutaneous injections. I don't think they're ever really going to actually be cheap, but I think that, that you will see where, where eventually these drugs get into the realm of where the average person can actually afford, afford to, to get them or their insurance companies are much more likely to, to pay for them. So, you know, I did want to mention that, that it, this drug wasn't in the guidelines because when these guidelines were, were being made, that drug wasn't FDA approved at all. Um, but I'm sure that if they were to update it, they would probably include that as well. So, uh, you know, again, right now, uh, a lot of people are hanging their hat on, on, on terzepatide. We shall see. Um, again, I don't want this to be another kind of fen-fen sort of thing, but I think that's something that, that may be incredibly effective, um, as effective as actually weight loss surgery. If you take a look at, at, at the weight loss surgery guidelines, um, that's obviously associated with much less problems. So very interested to see where, where that drug goes. The guidelines, uh, then getting back to that, do kind of discuss a, a couple of other medications, and we're going to talk about those medications, which are all oral, which is definitely an advantage, uh, right after this message from our sponsor, CE Impact. CE Impact CE memberships help you connect your learning to practice with unique education, just like this podcast. Go to ceimpact.com to sign up for a cost-effective membership and never worry about having enough CE again. So we are back talking about the AGA guidelines for medical therapy and obesity. We've talked about the GOP-1 agonist. Now we're going to dive into some combination products, which are also FDA approved uh, for obesity. Uh, the first we're going to talk about is the combination of fenteramine and topiramate. Uh, the guidelines do suggest using uh, uh, this combination compared with lifestyle interventions alone. Again, a conditional recommendation with moderate certainty. They also note because if you can find a comorbid reason to put someone on some of these medications, that that might help direct therapy. And they note that if someone, for example, had migraine headaches, that this combination would maybe be particularly beneficial for them because uh, it would also prevent their development of migraine headaches, as we know topiramate does that. So, you know, fenteramine, of course, has been used for over 40 years for the treatment of obesity. It is a, a amphetamine derivative, um, though it seems to have much less side effects than, 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 than pure uh, amphetamine. Um, there's also some concern about dependency and stuff like that. Uh, so that's something to kind of keep in mind with these medications. Though more recent data has, has really suggested that fenteramine is probably far safer than we, than we previously thought it was. Um, now they note that blood pressure and heart rate should be monitored periodically when taking fenteramine either by itself or with, with, with topiramate. Uh, but they also note that there's been, you know, now in the last 10 years or so, several studies that have actually suggested that, that especially this with this combination drug, that um, there really wasn't a significant increase in systolic blood pressure or heart rate. And, and so, you know, the kind of the thought that, oh, this is an amphetamine derivative and it's definitely going to jack somebody's blood pressure and, and, and heart rate. Um, it, you know, in more recent studies has not really been borne out. And so, again, I'm not saying you shouldn't, you know, be aware of this and take it, but, but um, you know, I would say that, and, and the guidelines actually say that, that if a person has controlled hypertension, you can, you know, cautiously start this medication and watch what it does to their blood pressure. And really, it's only contraindicated in patients with a history of cardiovascular disease and a and controlled hypertension would be the two the two uh, caveats um, that 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 you would want to consider in these medications. Um, they also note, and I get this question uh, as my in my role as, as director of the Drake Drug Information Center. I get this question four or five times a year. We have somebody on fenteramine for weight loss, and they require some sort of procedure that requires general anesthesia, even something as simple as as a um, uh, using fentanyl or something like that for for a colonoscopy or, or endoscopy or something like that. Um, and they note that you do have to be careful about that. That, that, that perioperative hypertensive crisis has occurred in these patients, as well as some other things like hypothermia and bradycardia. Um, because fenteramine is a sympathomimetic, the hyper 
adrenergic effects can be a potential hazard in the post-operative period, perioperative period. So what they basically say is that uh, you need to hold uh, um, fenteramine uh, for at least four days before a procedure requiring anesthesia. Um, I know previously that I, we were usually recommending based on the, the research we had found seven days, but it looks like uh, four days at a minimum is something that you can you can probably do as well. So again, the combination of fenteramine and topiramate. As far as effectiveness, um, uh, again, they ran their own meta-analysis on this and uh, uh, they basically found that, that in general, uh, they saw about a seven to 8% weight loss um, of total body weight in patients receiving this this, this combination um, as like eight to eight point two percent basically of, of total body weight. They did not list total uh, kilograms lost in, in their meta analysis. They also know that there was only three randomized controlled trials, so a little bit smaller studies uh, in this meta analysis compared to the GLP one drugs. So, uh, uh, recommendation five is that in patients with obesity or overweight with weight complications, the combination of naltrexone and bupropion extended release with lifestyle modifications uh, may be beneficial. They also note that in patients who are trying smoking cessation or depression, this combination, again, because of those comorbid conditions may, may, may be particularly beneficial. Uh, you would want to avoid bupropion in patients with seizure disorders or patients at risk of seizure disorders, which has always been one of my soapboxes to not use bupropion in these patients because I, I not uncommonly find somebody who happens to be on, you know, uh, um, Keppra for, for seizures and someone put them on bupropion. I'm like, uh, no, that's not a great idea. So something that you have to watch out for. And obviously with the naltrexone component of this combo, you'd want to not want to use it commonly with opioid medications as well. Uh, they know that there's five studies that have, have looked at uh, um, uh, the, this combination and actually found that that uh, in their meta-analysis that they found a total weight loss of only about 3%. So it just barely made the cutoff for effectiveness based on their previous minimum uh, uh, clinical effectiveness cutoff point. So, you know, again, based on their meta-analysis, it seems the combination of fenteramine and topiramate seems to be more effective than naltrexone and bupropion. Uh, they note that, that nausea, uh, headache, dizziness uh, are the most common side effects, but it seems to be relatively well uh, tolerated in, in, in most patients. So I think the tolerability factor may have you choose naltrexone bupropion uh, versus any of the other medications. Um, also, both uh, this medication would be safe to use in patients with established cardiovascular disease. So if someone, for example, couldn't afford the GLP-1 drugs, this might be a consideration. Now, the problem with both these combination products is that even though they're cheaper, then um, uh, the GLP-1 drugs are still quite expensive and the average person is not going to be able to afford them. Um, again, off-label, and I'm, again, I'm not saying I'm recommending this, but I know off-label, a lot of clinicians will use uh, generic uh, uh, combinations of these drugs. So they'll use generic naltrexone, generic bupropion, generic topiramate, generic fenteramine. And of course, they can't get the exact doses, so they just try and get as close as they possibly can. Uh, the, of course, the companies who made these drugs made them in dosage forms that you couldn't use the generic forms easily if, you know, why would they do that when no one then no one would use their name brand drug? But uh, many clinicians whose patients can't afford these combinations will try the combo in, in as close as they can get to the doses. Again, I'm not necessarily recommending that, but it's something, especially as pharmacists, you might see uh, as these drugs being um, uh, used, basically. Next recommendation, uh, they recommend the AGA suggests against the use of Orlistat, um, which is a conditional recommendation in moderate certainty. And the reason they do is that the, the uh, small weight loss, which in studies was only about 2%, percent did not seem to outweigh the significant GI adverse effects that occur with Orlistat. Orlistat is unique in that it is at a lower dose available over the counter um, and at a higher dose prescription. 
But as everybody knows, um, it's, it's a drug that has numerous GI side effects. And the joke I've always made um, to my students is that, you know, any drug that lists anal leakage as one of its side effects is a drug I'm probably not going to be on if I could avoid it. Um, and I've often said, you know, this drug basically is, is, is behavioral modification for uh, uh, patients with obesity, that basically if you're on these medications and you uh, eat fat, uh, you and or your wardrobe will, will, will suffer the consequences for it. So in that way, it's, it's kind of analogous to, to uh, disulfide. Sulfuram for, for alcohol, right? You know, you know, someone drinks alcohol on sulfuram, they're kind of punished for it. I kind of consider this drug along the same lines. And the fact that because it has these very common side effects and the fact that it, it isn't all that effective, it, it basically isn't recommended. They do note if someone's going to try it anyway, they should take a fat soluble vitamin because it's going to decrease absorption of fat soluble vitamins taken two hours apart from the orlistat. Then they finally recommend just plain old fenteramine. So, I mean, again, if, if someone absolutely could not afford or couldn't get any of these other medications, they do note that, that fenteramine, you know, is approved for short-term use, um, only 12 weeks of weight loss, but they note that many practitioners will use it long-term. And again, if, if, if you read uh, the literature that, you know, a lot of the safety issues that we get concerned about as far as cardiovascular stuff with fenteramine is probably, you know, uh, over-exaggerated. Uh, you do want to be careful because this drug is, is a controlled substance. And of course, there is the recommendation for, for dependency, but I think with close follow-up, patients actually do pretty good on this. And anecdotally, I've spoken to, to, to physicians who feel like it, it seems to work fairly well. They can usually get kind of a 5 to 8% weight loss uh, drop in them. And again, if, as long as they watch them uh, and, and kind of monitor them, the people tend to, tend to do pretty, get pretty good on them. Finally, uh, the guidelines talk about uh, um, the uh, Gelasis 100 oral superabsorbent hydrogel, which is actually technically a, a device by the FDA, but as, since it's swallowed as a capsule, they, they do include it here. Um, I've got a couple of questions about this in the DI center. So it's basically uh, a device similar to ingestible balloons that are developed, developed in the form of a pill. So basically it's a capsule that contains these hydrogel spheres that are made of cellulose and citric acid. Once they get into the stomach, they, they create a transient space occupying the stomach and basically act like someone blew up a little tiny balloon in your stomach that, that makes you feel full and so you don't want to basically you know want to eat um, and then uh, they note that that basically eventually they break down and pass through the luminal GI tract until they reach the colon where they're degraded. Um, the problem that they note in the in the uh, uh, guidelines is that there wasn't enough data to make a recommendation for or against them. Um, I would argue that we have one single RCT that showed a small benefit, again, kind of in the two to three percent weight loss range, and um, that these this uh, device <laughs> is incredibly expensive. So again, I mean, I, I know the AJ doesn't make a, make a recommendation uh, of really for or against, but I would argue that given the really low rate of of weight loss and the fact that um, um, while it's probably safer than some of these other in indications, it's incredibly expensive that I, I think there's many other uh, uh, modalities you could use for weight loss and, and, and really would, would not recommend using this, this, this super absorbent hydrogel. So, so that kind of summarizes the AJA guidelines. Again, I, you know, it's, it, we have a lot more uh, options to choose from than we did even 15 years ago. And I think you know, uh, informing clinicians that yes, it's reasonable to use some of these medications in the right patients and, and, but also keeping in mind the access issues, both, both you know, having the drug in the pharmacy as well as having insurance pay for it is, is another big issue. So that's it for this uh, uh, episode of Game Changers. Uh, thank you for listening. Again, uh, hit that like, hit that subscribe button and, and go to CE Impact and, and help us keep the lights on. As I mentioned earlier, we will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll see you next week. Don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode. 
please subscribe for all episodes and tune in next week for another clinical practice game changer.